Hello, I'm Susan Gordon, and you're listening to The Culture Bore, where I joyfully fall down rabbit holes lined with books, poems, and art. Today, I'm exploring what really happens when we share the books that matter to us most and the soundtracks to our lives. There's every opportunity to tell the world what you really love. The great and the good can curate their selections on Desert Island Discs or Radio 3's Private Passions. They can write books about books, books about reading. For everyone else, there are Spotify playlists, Substack newsletters, slightly wonky pictures of book covers on Twitter. But is celebrating our passions so publicly always selfless? Is it possible to be too vocal, too voluble when it comes to personal taste? Can the individual regard or zeal for a highbrow author or talented songwriter slide from the purity of enthusiasm to egocentricity? When Julie Andrews sings about her favourite things in The Sound of Music, the charms of sleigh bells and crisp apple strudels will invite everyone without exclusion. If she had been singing about the pleasures of Rachmaninoff or remembering the novels she read to while away time in the convent, would the effect have been quite the same? I want to know the title of your latest hardback. It's a casual and covert interest, but it's always there. If you're reading a book on the train... I'll try to see its cover. If that book is peeping from the contents of a handbag, I take a glance at its spine. If you happen to be a writer, my interest is higher still. It's what led me to order Henry Miller's The Books in My Life at my local library. I know very little about Henry Miller. I know he was an American who moved to Paris before the Second World War. I know he wrote at least one book which was banned because it was naughty. A few months earlier, I looked at a travel log of his, The Colossus of Morissi. Already I struggled to remember much from it. This ignorance, I thought, was a good place to start. I'm holding Miller's book in my hands. Inside the back cover, I find the library stamps dated 3rd of October 1976, 30th of March 1977. Considering the book is nearly 50 years old, it's in pretty good shape. The pages only slightly yellowed. All are still attached to the spine. The title is in very simple type. The covers are plain and orange. The orange of a workman's safety jacket. Miller knows how to write chapter titles. They were alive and they spoke to me, is one. Another, reading in the toilet. The books that are so alive to him are in chapter one. They're the books that he encounters as a child. And this is Miller at his least confrontational, his most approachable. He writes, There is one thing which differentiates the reading done in childhood from later reading, and that is the absence of choice. The books one reads as a child are thrust upon one. He goes on to ask, What child has not read Sinbad the Sailor, Jason and the Golden Fleece, Ali Barber and the Forty Thieves, The Fairy Tales of Grimm and Anderson, Robinson Crusoe, Gulliver's Travels? Those names are broadly familiar. Little else is. Many of Miller's reference points are completely alien to me. It's quickly apparent that 100 years in literature is a very long time. A lot has been discarded along the way. Napoleon's memoirs is one title he feels he ought to have read, and probably will, eventually, one day. I didn't know Napoleon had a memoir. Listening to someone talk at length about an author or book I've never read and never will is uniquely discouraging. What deters me more is Miller's hectoring, his insistence on almost any point. 
Reading in the toilet starts well, but is soon tainted by his lofty recollections. He boasts, I remember getting the sack once when I was caught reading Nietzsche instead of editing the mail order catalogue. The trouble is, I don't believe him. The Books of My Life was published in 1952. It's a chunky book, nearly 300 pages of small type, dedicated to his reading habits and chosen authors. Thirteen years earlier, The Cosmological Eye was published. It's an assorted collection of his essays. I sorted out at the British Library. At the back, I find a biographical note. In it, Miller writes, I owe a lot to the dictionary and the encyclopedia, which, like Balzac, I read voraciously when I was younger. Until I was 25, I'd scarcely read a novel, except for the Russians. This does not necessarily contradict the later book. He goes on to say that in his youth, he preferred non-fiction, including philosophy. But tonally, it's very different. There's no romanticism about childhood reading, no mention of Sinbad the Sailor, or anything like it. When it comes to opinion, a disagreement can have an almost seismic effect. Miller declares Charles Dickens' books usually boring, although he makes an exception for David Copperfield. Boring? I reel back. I remember Great Expectations and how much I admire its storytelling. Miller and I could never be friends. Of Wuthering Heights, he writes, Having heard it praised so much and so often, I'd concluded that it was impossible for an English novel, by a woman, to be that good. He does eventually read Wuthering Heights. In one gulp, he recalls. Astounded, as is everyone, I suspect, by its amazing power and beauty. His book went back to the library a week later. A contemporary comparison is Dear Reader, The Comfort and Joy of Books by Kathy Rensenbrink. That was published in 2020. Like Miller, Rensenbrink recalls the books and reading habits that are so present for her. For Rensenbrink and Miller, it's not just reading, it's a way of living. Like Miller, she begins with the books she read as a child. Her prose and the subject matter, a mere mention of the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, is like pulling a warm blanket around me. It's cosy, delicious. I love it. Later, she skillfully links the books she is reading to moments in her life. It's a coherent autobiographical thread, which keeps me reading, wanting to know what will happen next. Rensenbrink is open about her total immersion in books, and there is the tacit acknowledgement that sometimes this total immersion is an escape from life. For her, it was one way to survive in the aftermath of a family tragedy. Like Miller, she finds Dickens boring. Like Miller, she's dogmatic in a few ways, determined. I wonder if to be a reader, dogmatic and determined are essential traits. The confident joy of books is the equivalent of stitching with enthusiasm. The result is a big, soft quilt. It's lovely, but it's not more than that. Generally, I did not feel that knowing the books Cathy read and enjoyed got me any closer to understanding who she is. Perhaps it was this quibbling dissatisfaction which led me to look at the motives for publishing curated lists. I'm not sure that becoming acquainted with the reading habits or favourite books of someone relays anything concrete other than what those reading habits and books are. I might be able to say someone has good taste or bad taste or judge their tastes to be different from mine. That's all. Yet I suspect the reason we share our favourite books and music tracks so readily is not only to support the writers and artists named. It's not only because we hope to engender more admiration, extend the fandom a little bit farther. It's because we hope our favourite things do say something about us, 
It's why Michael Jackson might be named in a trawl for the life of a teenager in the 80s. It's why the alchemist appears on dating profiles. However opaque its meaning, a passion for something is part of one's identity. At the start of today's show, I noted the purity of enthusiasm. It's difficult to fake. Like laughter, enthusiasm can be irrepressible, unexpected. Sometimes it's a step removed from one's consciousness. Enthusiasm is noticed by everyone except the enthusiast. I wanted to know if or when the sharing of a curated playlist was selfish or egocentric. If it's put together in an effort to tell others, this is who I am, then it's asserting one's identity. And that's usually a highly conscious manoeuvre. It's also acting in one's personal interest. Yet we have to create these windows onto ourselves, build mirrors, however faulty, or we'll remain strangers to each other forever. It may be selfish, but it's also necessary. It may be that these windows or mirrors are built quite accidentally. When Maria sings about snowflakes and silver-white winters in The Sound of Music, it is selfless. She only wants to cheer up the discomforted children. She has no interest in expressing her own identity. She says nothing about her character. She's singing to them, and that says everything. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me next time as we go into the woods with the Culture Bois.